So I got done, um, I got done reading what I was going to do at this to my wife. Uh, and, I, and I got done. And she looks at me and she says, well, I hope you're going to say more things than that. <laughs> you know. And I said, lover, honestly, it's late. Do I really need to hear what more I need to do? This is in the car on the way up here. And Nick, you, you, will, you will appreciate this. Nick's one of these husbands whose wife is always clomped onto his rear end with her teeth. You know what I'm saying? Any of you have a wife like that? Come on. Come on, be honest. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all rejoicing. She's like that way in your case. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Come on, tell me. I'm, I'm saying the truth. Yeah, yeah. Well, then there was about 10 minutes of silence. And I said, look, everybody tells men not to look at pornography. Because you know that's what every woman wants you to say to the, to the men. And so don't look at pornography. So I'm going to start with that. Just don't do it. You can't scoop fire into your lap and not get burned. You're never in control of your pornographies. You're not in control of your history. Just don't do it. What else am I supposed to say? Mary, maybe Mary Lee would have more to say to you. But listen, a couple of things about pornography. We're working on a long statement on abortion. And in the process of doing this statement, I have been trying to get pro-life people to admit for years that the issue is not Planned Parenthood. It's just not. The issue is the hormonal methods of birth control you use. And that's what's killing babies. And the problem is that Planned Parenthood is public. Hormonal birth control is private. And furthermore, if they use, like, prostaglandin, you know, if they use these midterm abortifacients, you know, that, that Planned Parenthood sells, those things can be used in the privacy of your own home. You can order these over the Internet. Your wife can order them without you knowing, and she can kill your child. And that's happening constantly in the church today. You wouldn't even know it. Now, think about how you would feel if you knew your wife was taking drugs to kill your child, the fruit of your lovemaking. How would you feel about it? Then think of how a woman feels about a husband hiding naked flesh. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Now, if you want a prophylactic, you know what a prophylactic is, right? Something that keeps something from doing something. If you want a prophylactic, it's not software programs, they can help. The prophylactic is for you to love your wife. I mean, honestly, you don't displace sins by saying, I'm not going to sin. You know, you displace sins by loving what you're supposed to love. And so this talk today is very important for not giving yourself to pornography. Don't do it. Don't do it. Now, I'm not saying this because I have not sinned many times with pornography. But, you know, uh, for many years now, it has been almost no temptation at all. And it's a variety of reasons. One, age does bring some benefits. But the other thing is, I remember one of the last times I confessed my, uh, my adultery with my idolatry in my eyes. I did it. I would do it to Max. Max is David Carell, sits there in the back. And he's standing in his office, and he, you know what, some of you know what he did. He looked at me and he said what? Shame on you. When David Carell says shame on you, guess what? You just lost face. <laughs> you didn't save face. You lost it. And there are times where we as men should lose face with our wives and with the men that we respect the most. 
And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. You go ahead and commit adultery physically and you go ahead and get a divorce. You go ahead, you, you just knock your socks off. We've seen that happen. All right, now one other thing that Mary Lee didn't say, but I want to say, and then I'll give you the talk. What were the two things Mary Lee and I fight, fighted? I'm talking like Brandon Chastine. <laughs> what were the two things that Mary and I fighted most about when we were first married? Well, one of them was hair. We, had, we did not have a pot to piss in. We were poor. We did not have a table. We did not have chairs. We did not have anything except a stereo and a mattress and one chest of drawers. We sat cross-legged on shag carpet to eat our dinners. All right? And Mary Lee would take our hard-earned money, and she would go down to the hairdresser. And she would spend money paying them to cut her hair. And I didn't want her to cut her hair. And she would do it again and again. Sometimes she'd get it permed. Now, that was bad enough. She didn't care what I wanted. But the horrible thing was she'd come home and she'd cry. Why? Because she didn't like what they'd done. So it was like insane. It was absolutely insane. So, yeah, we'd fight over her hair. You know the other thing we'd fight over most intensely? Anybody want to take a guess? Nope. 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 No, almost. You're close. You're close. What? What did we fight over? That's right. And men... There's no excuse for the condition of some of your homes. There's no excuse. Your home needs to be orderly and clean. And your wife needs to know that you're the boss about orderliness and cleanliness. My wife has gone into a number of the homes of women in our church and she has cleaned, but she feels like shooting herself when she's done because she knows within a couple of weeks it'll be back. You know? There's no excuse for you allowing yourself to come home to a pigsty. Doug Wilson once was talking about child rearing in a Sunday evening service, and I listened to the tape, and he said something that was so profound it could only have come from Doug. Okay? He said, if your children don't obey until you count to three, it's because you've taught your children not to obey until you count to three. It was cataclysmic. It was life-changing to me. <laughs> you know? It was so profound and deep. Well, if your home's a pigsty, that's because you've taught your wife to keep your home a pigsty. And you say, no, 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 I've tried. Listen, trust me, I know how hard it is to get a woman to change her ways in the matter of cleanliness. But I wouldn't give in. And you say, well, I'm not as stubborn and willful as you are. And I say, I'm not trying to get you to be me. I'm just simply trying to get you to enjoy coming home. And this is not male chauvinist pigism. Your children should not have to live with that. Have your home clean. If you don't get your wife to do the basic work she's supposed to do, then what on earth does scripture mean when it says that the wife should, Titus 2, be domestic? What is domesticity if it isn't cleanliness and order? And you say, well, it's not that important to me. And I say, oh, yeah, you know, a weak man has a whole host of things that aren't that important to him. Uh, uh, uh. I don't know who you are, but thank you for smiling. <laughs> that helped me. <laughs> he, he goes like this, smiles. You know. 
so guys, listen. Uh, I try to explain to women that to not clean really doesn't save them any work. Now, I'm, I'm mostly right about that, mostly right about it, because if you establish the cleanliness of your home at this level, it takes the same amount of work to keep it at that level as it does at this level. In other words, no woman just ceases to work. She just lives under this guilt trip all the time, and she, oh, I'm sorry, my house is such a mess. I always tell pastors, don't ever let people know you're coming to visit them. Because when you get to that door, you're the shepherd, and it allows you to see what condition that home is in, you know? And I'll have to tell you that very rarely am I disapproving. I'm not talking about these homes that are perfectly clean and perfectly filthy spiritually. Too clean a home is as bad as a filthy home. Because usually it indicates that the focus is on superficial things and not the heart. And so I don't want your home to be a testimony to the perfection of your wife. That's awful. But your home should have the dishes cleaned and your children should help. I cleaned every single kitchen up my entire life at home. I cleaned the kitchen after the meal. Okay? And Sundays when we had all the guests. And I cut the grass and I can't tell you all this stuff. I cleaned the bathrooms. I was a punk. I did an excellent job. To this day, I love cleaning up the kitchen. Taylor, tell them it's true. <laughs> yeah, it is true. Doesn't mean I always do it. So men, have standards for your wife. And implement them. And fight her over it. And tell her. You know, as I've gotten older, sometimes I'll say to Mary Lee, hey, lover. You know, we'll be at a conflict that's worth winning. You know, some are not worth winning. Some are just sin on your part. But the, if I have a conflict that's worth winning, as I've gotten older, I've had faith to say to her, hey, lover, am I the head of the home? <laughs> you know, is this a hypothetical construct? You know, or am I the head of the home? You know? And so be the head of your home, establish the standard, and require it. And I guarantee you, it's just like children, in a while your husband, will, your wife will come back and tell you she's thankful you did that. And so I fought Mary Lee over the discipline of our children for decades. And she's had a chance now to watch the children of her siblings. And she's come back and said to me, I'm so thankful I had you as a husband on the issue of discipline. You know, I had to wait 40 years to hear it. <laughs> that's, that's not true. All right. Now, you might wonder why I'm going to talk on this this morning, but I want to talk about companionship. I notice, you know, doing marriage counseling, just watching with your wives, that um, often there's a lack of fermentation. And by fermentation, I mean uh, interest. It's like I look at you and you're bored with each other. You're tolerating each other. And that's an intolerable state of affairs with a husband and a wife. Now, I don't mean to say that, that, uh, that what you need to do then is you need to uh, um, share sin. Because there are many marriages of Christians where what they have in common is sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean criticizing the pastor's sermon. I mean being bitter at a brother or sister-in-law. I mean, bitterness is a big one. Shared bitterness can hold a couple together till they die. And that, that's not what I'm talking about. Now, I'm talking about looking at this world that God has given you and falling in love with it and requiring your wife to be as interested and in love with it as you are. Don't be a lazy dog. God has given you a glorious creation. I mean, honestly. I had my, one of my granddaughters, this one's named Bailey. She came over, and for Christmas, she gave me all these, like, paintings that she had done of, of mostly of uh, birds. 
And they're absolutely beautiful. And I'm colorblind and they're beautiful. And she came over this week. I looked out, there's pails hanging from my trees. What on earth? You know? Well, she and her family are making maple syrup. She just is this charming, beautiful, womanly, creativity, interest. She's just looking at the world God has put in front of her, and she thinks it's her oyster shell, which is generally what young women are like. The world is my oyster shell. That's how God made young women. The world is my oyster shell. And so she was in this week, and she begins to explain to me. I gave her a drive to, a drive to church, a ride to drive. And she says, oh, there's a, what was it? It was, yeah, there's a kestrel. And I'm like, okay, all right. What's a kestrel? <laughs> and Bailey proceeds to teach and teach and teach me about colors, about how, what their size is, that they're a part of the, uh, what's it called, group, you know, the raptor. It's a little raptor. It's one here and there's one here. And then she proceeds to open up the issue of, uh, and then she says, by the way, there are two maple trees on your property that you've killed one of them and you're killing the other one. (laughs) Well, we had put a hammock up with chain, and now one of the chains is in the tree that deep. And above it, the tree's bigger, and below it, the tree is smaller. So that one's probably done, but the other one I can still... And here is this young woman. And she's just like, bruh, 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 bruh. Whatever you give her to read about and to study, she will love. Now, that is what God intends you and your wife to be. The, inter- the, the, the only interesting thing in your life is not your children. I know everybody's going to find their children interesting, and that's good. But birds are interesting. Cars are interesting. Batteries are interesting. Trees are interesting. Books are interesting. And God has given you a woman to share your interests. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, oh, for heaven's sakes, this guy's on such an, a masculine ego trip. It's always your, your, your. Can't this guy get off my back? Well, look, when I was a young man, I was telling my sister, who you, if you know anything about me and my brother and my sister, you know that my sister is the opposite. She is the antipode to biblical Christianity with a vengeance. And she's twice as intense as my brother. And my brother is twice as intense as I am. And if you don't believe me, ask Wayne Huck. He'll tell you. (laughs) Now, I was talking to my sister and telling her how guilty I felt about the fact that I wasn't spending the time I needed to spend with my children. And my sister said to me, well, just take them with you to do what you like. And it was so liberating. Now, who are my heroes in this? Well, two of them are over there sitting in the same row, Eric Rasmussen and D. Wayne. D. Wayne is just like, I keep telling him, slow down, you move too fast, you gotta make your lifetime last. <laughs> There's nothing, D. Wayne, I, I quoted uh, Bill Cosby to him recently, you know, I'm going to go to the zoo, I'm going to Japan, I'm going to China, I'm going everywhere. Yep, 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 yep. That's D. Wayne. Everything is interesting, everything is can do, and everybody is his child. Have you noticed this? <laughs> you know, and he tires me out, you know, but he loves everything and wants to learn about it. Eric Rasmussen is the same way. Eric Rasmussen is just like this churning interest machine. (laughs) He makes me tired. Can you imagine how Helen feels? (laughs) You know? (laughs) You tire out your wife, I'll bet, with your thinking. But here are men who look at God's world and they say, this is beautiful. This is my oyster shell. 
And then they learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. I once had a young man live in our home with us. His father signed us has signed him over in a courtroom. <laughs> and it was one of the funniest things I've ever done in my life to go in that courtroom. The judge comes in, sits down. We're the two in the court sitting next to each other. And the judge says, now the, the father, the, 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 the father of origin who, whose progeny we are. And the father sitting next to me. And he was sitting upright. And he's like, yeah, he has no clue what the words mean. You know, he's trying to figure out what the judge is asking him. You know, and so he says, Your Honor, and he says, The progeny of the di- diaspora of the <laughs> hypotenuse are you the, di- are, you know, and he's like, and he takes off his glasses and he looks at him. He says, Your Honor, I'm not sure what you're asking me, but if you want to know who sired the boy, that's me. <laughs> notice it talked about siring the boy in Proverbs last night and I was just thinking about you know sitting there I sired the boy (laughs) it's like he can't get his mind off his cattle you know (laughs) (laughs) well you think about the fact that the world from the animals to the vegetation the stars the clouds the weather the children he's given you Cars, pickup trucks, horses. You know, this little girl, this young woman, Bailey, we have neighbors that have horses, and she got to be friends with them. They'd have her come over, feed the cats, feed the horses, and stuff. So one day, she cleans the stables. And when they get home, the husband, his wife meets him. She says, thank you, sweetie. And he says, thank thank you for what? She says, well, you cleaned the stables. He said, no, I didn't clean the stables. And they looked at each other and they said, Bailey must have cleaned the stables. So they hired her to clean the stables. I don't really like it very much. I cleaned stables for a couple years when I was a young man. It's dangerous. Horses actually are dangerous. (laughs) Now, companionship. The world is an interesting place. And one of the gifts that you can give your wife, which will most show your, life, your love for her, is if you ask her, and if she doesn't respond positively, you tell her to share your interests. You beat down her door with your interests. You make her be interested in the things you're interested in. I'm not saying don't share her interests. Mary Lee sews, and I love it. I want to learn about her sewing machine because I hear it clicking and I think it needs to be oiled and cleaned, you know? So I learn about sewing machines, you know? I'm not saying don't share her interests, but you are the head of your home. It's unseemly if your wife doesn't share your interests. And you have to teach her to. Now, I want to read a scripture account. There's a chapter on this in the book, and I do want you to read the chapter to your wife, which means you have to buy the book. And I'm sorry about that, but I've never, I don't think I've ever gotten any royalties from any of the books. Have I, Alex? If so, maybe a hundred. I have gotten, from my dad's book, I have. It's not, it's not a substantial. Well, but I, well. (laughs) If I have, it's been a mistake because I have said to Alex and to everyone that I don't want but he has to write checks, and my, what, it's very complicated, but what I want is for all of them to go to Warhorn Ministries. And so I, I would like to know how much has not gone to Warhorn. Anyhow, I don't ask you to buy the book because there's any money in it. I read the Oxford Dictionary quotations when I went in the ministry, and there was a quote in there, any man that writes a book for money is a fool. And it's true. Okay. Now let me read to you uh, a passage. This is from Acts 18. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, 
He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, why would I read that text talking to you about companionship? Well, note carefully what Scripture does not say here. Scripture does not record for us that Aquila took Apollos aside and corrected him privately. Man to man. Rather, it was both Priscilla and Aquila who took him aside and explained him the way of God more accurately. This was doctrinal correction given by a wife and husband together. Okay? All right? And they were giving it to an eloquent and bold man who was mighty in the scriptures. So to make the point crystal clear, Priscilla was not serving the men tea. But lest we jump to the feminist conclusion that Priscilla was there to demonstrate her superior gift, seize her moment, and destroy all those patriarchal fetters she and her strong, wise sisters suffered under because of the insecurity of men of the time. Note carefully this helpful explanation the reformer John Calvin gave five centuries ago. All right, so that you won't think that I've become a feminist on you, okay? John Calvin says about this text, he said, this was no small modesty which was in Apollos, in that he doth suffer himself to be taught and instructed, not only by a handy craftsman, but also by a woman. We see that one of the chief teachers of the church was instructed by a woman. Ha, 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 ha. Notwithstanding, we must remember that Priscilla did execute this function of teaching at home in her own house, that she might not overthrow the order prescribed by God in nature. Earlier in the chapter, Aquila's name comes before his wife's. But here in the record of their correction of Apollos, the order of their names is flipped, Priscilla and Aquila. Why? Well, Bible commentators from both present and past centuries think this change in the order indicates something special about Priscilla's gifts and knowledge. This married couple were a cornerstone of the New Testament church and a blessing to Paul. We read in Romans 16, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. The first thing we actually notice is that Priscilla, referred to here in the diminutive Prisca, okay, and Aquila apparently worked together. They were tent makers. Now, it is no small feat to work side by side as a married couple. (laughs) Mary Lee and I know because we used to do it, painting and cleaning houses together. Let's just say it wasn't our greatest time of togetherness. Next, both of them, not just Aquila, were dear friends of Paul. We don't know the details, but they risked their lives for him. They were active together in the ministry. Paul refers to them as, quote, fellow workers in Christ. And they also hosted a church in their home. This was quite the couple. Maybe we don't know scripture and the doctrine of salvation as well as Priscilla and Aquila did, but even if we had knowledge and wisdom equal to theirs, which of our marriages would have the sort of loving intimacy to work so naturally together? Taking a man as gifted as Apollos aside and speaking to him helpfully so he was able to serve the church better. Would our marriages be described as being this sort of blessing to God's people? Would your wife and you be able to bear such good fruit together? That's where you're headed. Okay. 
Barb and Kent Hughes are a couple who were a blessing to Mary Lee and me many years ago and still are today. Soon after moving to begin ministry at a yoke parish of two churches in the dairy land of Wisconsin, we received the most recent issue of leadership in our mailbox, a magazine for, quote, ministry professionals. That issue had an interview with several famous pastor wives, one of whom was Barb Hughes. Her husband, Kent, was then pastor of our home church in Wheaton, Illinois. At the time, we did not know Barb and Kent personally. We knew they were very, very close to my parents, Joe and Mary Lou. Very close friends. The interview shocked us. There was a stark contrast between Barb's responses and the responses of the other evangelical leaders' wives. When these other women, maybe five of them, were asked questions relating to their interface with their husband's ministry, they distanced themselves from him, saying their husband's calling wasn't their calling. Their husband's work wasn't their work. Their husband's needs weren't their responsibility. And on it went. But not Barb. They're shining gloriously amidst these liberated women was sweet, sharp as attack Barb, testifying that she was Kent's wife. That his calling was her calling. His ministry was her ministry. His work was her work. His needs were her responsibility, which gave her joy. And on it went. It was mind-boggling. I mean, every time all these other Nazi women were blathering about how they were too important to be concerned about their husband and his calling. And Barb's like, you know, the whack-a-mole. She keeps popping up, and they keep whacking her, and she keeps popping up. We didn't know her at the time. We got done reading that article, and of course, it was something I was reading, and so I said, Mary Lee, come here, and I made her sit and listen. And I read it to her, and of course, by the end, Mary Lee and I had fallen in love with Barb Hughes. You should be grateful anytime you find something good among leaders. <laughs> you know, it's such a miracle today, <laughs> you know. And so what you do is as soon as anybody who's in leadership makes you grateful, write them. They need encouragement. And so we sat down, we wrote a letter to Barb Hughes. And we just said, that was excellent. That was so wonderful. Thank you. You were perfect. What a gift. Oh, it was so comforting to us. Oh, and we just wrote a letter saying this, you know. Well, a short time later, Bob call, Barb called Mary Lee and asked if she and Kent could come up for a visit. Now, that would be, I don't think you have any idea what that's like. Because they were at ground zero of evangelicalism when evangelicalism was... At the, at the top of its form in the last century. And being published, speaking everywhere, you know, he's still in Gospel Coalition. I, you know, nobody's perfect. <laughs> you know? And so they write us and they say, can we come up? And we're like, are you serious? Well, sure, come on up, right? So they came up. They drove two and a half hours up from Wheaton, spent the day with us. And you imagine what a gift this was. We were young, so to have an older pastor and his wife spend a day sharing their wisdom and commitments and showing us their affection was so helpful. Now, maybe you think it's a non sequitur to follow the example of Priscilla with the example of Barb Hughes. But they're not as different as they may at first appear. Both women shared in their husband's ministry. Both were helpmates, not seeing themselves as too good or important to help their husbands. Certainly at their dinner table, Barb helped teach many men. And knowing Barb, we can promise that she sometimes took the lead. No doubt Priscilla showed wifely feminine deference to Aquila, even as she helped instruct Apollos. And yes, she probably also served tea or coffee or whatever. Luke held Priscilla and Aquila up as an exemplary couple. And here Mary Lee and I hold Barb and Kent up as an exemplary couple. My point is not to talk about pastors' marriages, though, but marriages in general. It could be your pastor and his wife. It could be an elder, a deacon and his wife. It could be your small group leader and his wife. It could be a missionary and his wife. It could be your son and his wife. It could be your dad and his wife, your mother. It could be you and your wife. And that's what we're really concerned with now. We all need such gifts from married couples. The gift of seeing them work seamlessly together the growth of our sons and daughters physically, emotionally, and doctrinally, 
also depends upon watching such a seamless working relationship between their father and mother. If the wife is unwilling to grow in her wisdom and knowledge, or the husband is unwilling to defer to his wife in areas where she is superior to him in wisdom and knowledge, it all goes to pieces. Then what Apollos or your pastor or your sons and daughters will remember is that togetherness is not one of the strengths of your marriage. Is this what you want? When you're together with others, do you want them feeling awkward (laughs) about the two of you because your wife is filled with herself and overpowers her husband or corrects him at every turn? That's wrong! It's wrong! Don't let that happen! Oh my goodness! It's so embarrassing to you. It's so embarrassing. If your wife corrects you constantly when you have contributions to a conversation, it's because you've taught your wife to correct you constantly when you're involved in a conversation. I mean, come on, guys, please. If you don't mind being humiliated and shamed yourself, would you please keep me from feeling the pain of it? It's just so awkward. I was in a home recently. Some of you know this story. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Well, the husband said, yeah, yeah, yeah. The woman went, blah, 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 blah. And blah, 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 blah. And it's because of blah, 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 blah. And blah, 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 blah. And she was absolutely confident of everything she said. And she was teaching me, and she was teaching my wife, and we sat there and listened. And it went blah, 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 blah. It's not accidental. She's a graduate of Wheaton College. And finally, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. I tried. I asked some interesting questions. I showed my curiosity blah 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 and then finally she moved from this particular profession she was talking about being so corrupt and everybody did it did it did it did it she moved to the church and she began to tell me what christians need well what she said was contrary to how the elders of our church had led in the past period of time And I still couldn't get a word in edgewise. I'm a pastor. And her husband's going, yep, yep, yep. And she's blah, 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 blah. And so you know what I did? Let's say her name is Betty. Okay. Finally, after... 35 to 40 minutes of this, intense. I looked at her and I said, you know, Betty, I'm very thankful that you're not an elder of the church. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, you know, somebody have pity on me. I didn't know a polite way of handling it. I had tried to, like, insert myself, make suggestions, act interested. I tried everything I could. And finally, I said, I'm glad you're not an elder of the church. Well, of course, within minutes, she was in tears. And she was telling me that I had hurt her. And then her husband was telling me that he was disappointed in me because I had hurt his wife. And a few minutes after that... I I didn't get angry. I stood up and I said, well, you know, maybe it would be best if I just leave. (laughs) It was just so awful. Now, we kissed and made up later in the kitchen. Men, your wife is your wife. She is your helpmate. Do not allow her to shame you. Do not be her cheerleader. It's patronizing. You say, well, that's not the right word. 
And I'd say, well, okay, you got a better word? Where's Brandon? Is there a better word? Nope. Eric? <laughs> it's not quite patronizing. So what is it? It's like, oh, there is a word. What's that word? Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, no, it's, uh, what's the word for the husband? <laughs> you know this word. The husband that's like, you know, too submissive to his wife. No, it's not obsequious. It's, that's, that's the, no, no, there's, there's a more sophisticated word that means, what? Not a, no, no, no. Oh. I'll ask my wife, she'll know. She will know. <laughs> use, use your phone and find it. No. <laughs> no. A man that's cuckolded is a man whose wife commits adultery on him. And that's where this heads. Okay. By the way, I do think every single one of you should have your eye out for men who are a threat to your wife's purity. I don't think there's any man that goes through his life without seeing in the eyes of his wife and the eyes of a man something that's bad. Okay. When you see that, do you know what to do? You don't get angry. You end it. You have to do that. She's your wife. You don't allow any man to make eyes at your wife or flirt with her. <laughs> okay. Oh, come on, Brandon. Now I'm not going to be able to get it out of my mind. <laughs> How do, we, how do we cultivate a marriage like the marriage of Aquila and Priscilla that blesses others? How do we work toward marriage that is capable of natural relations with others in the church who are pleased to spend time with us and listen to our counsel? And by the way, if people don't want to come to your house and they don't invite you to their house, it's because you have created a marriage and children and a house that people don't like to be around. It's not, it's not their fault. If your children are constantly interrupting at the table, when you go over to people's house for dinner, they won't invite you back. <laughs> I mean, it's not their fault. Children are supposed to be deferential, right? Wives are to be deferential. It doesn't mean that the wife doesn't speak. I'm giving you the example of Priscilla and Aquila, okay? But your children, your home, should be places that make people feel comfortable. The way you relate to your wife should make people feel comfortable. Don't blame other people. Don't let your wife blame other people. Women are really good at that. They build resentment for years because they don't get invited to somebody's house or because somebody, you know, did you get it yet? Yes. Yeah. U-X-O-U-X-O-R-I-O-U-S. Uxorious. It's a good word, man. It describes every hipster. It is the definition of a hipster. You know you're in a, a gentrified area when you see men walking small dogs. <laughs> We had this wonderful hotel provided for us by the committee. Perfect. You know, Warren Zevon, his hair was perfect, right? And it was gay out the wazoo. I mean, it was just... And I walk in the lobby with Mary Lee, and I tell her, you better go check us in, because I'm not in a good space right now. <laughs> you know? So she goes up to the... And she, she's walking away from me. I, I said... And this is all these guys standing. And I said, it's so gay. <laughs> you know, I figured, you know, why not speak? You know, they don't like me straight. 
They don't like me breeding. I mean, some of my best friends are little rat fink dogs. <laughs> okay. Historically, Christians have confessed that Scripture gives three purposes of marriage. And I've talked about this yesterday. And the first one, the first one again is what? The first one is mutual help and encouragement. That's the first one. Your wife should be a joy to you. And if she's not, you need to make her into a joy for you, you know? And listen, guys, trust me. I know a lot of your marriages, and I know I go to bed last night, wake up this morning thinking I'm not helping them. I know some of your wives are a pill. I know that. But then work on them. Work on them. Make them into who you want them to be. That's what it means to sanctify the bride. And that's what Jesus is doing with the church. He's making us holy. Why is he doing that? Well, because we're not holy. Who do you think has it harder, you with your wife or Christ with you? (laughs) Seriously. And he just keeps persevering you. He perseveres you and he perseveres you. And that's probably the most profound truth to yesterday and today about marriage. You want God to persevere you. Because you are a piece of work. Every one of us is. There is no good husband. And if he presents himself as good, he's particularly bad. Because it's all about appearances. You know... Um, My wife says, don't read. And I say, well, if I don't read, then it's all over the place. (laughs) But, you know, we had a man that was a pastor of a Presbyterian church in Boulder, Colorado. I went to work with him and his senior, and it was a huge church, very wealthy. And right downtown, had a whole city block. He had worked with my dad at the publishing company. Then he went out to take a position as the first associate pastor. And his children were just classic pastor's kids. They were just, they were just pieces of work. And I could never understand it because he and his wife would take us up into Estes Park and we'd go up and, you know, take hikes and find the elk bugling in the fall, you know, and they'd tell us what every flower was. They're just the perfect parents, you know, and Mary Lee and I needed, you know, and they would, oh, there were so many things they did for us. I couldn't figure out what happened to their children, you know? So then I heard from either his son, I think it was his son, years later his son told me, that when they went out to take the job in Boulder, in the car, on the way out there, right before they got to Boulder, so they're, you know, going out 80, and then they drop down on, what, 25 South or whatever it is that goes down the front range, right? And as they went down the front range by Fort Collins, their father said to them in the car, listen to me. This job is, I don't know if he said my last chance, but I wouldn't be surprised if he actually put it that bluntly. This job is my last chance, and don't you kids screw it up for me. And so what is he saying? Well, he's saying, keep who you are under wraps. I don't care about you. I care about my job. And what does that do? Well, that makes it clear to the kids that the father is a selfish pig. And that he's not concerned about his children. He's concerned about his reputation. Don't ever allow your children to see or hear that from you. Don't ever do that. That's a terrible, terrible thing to do with your children. That your reputation among prissy Christians is more important to you than their souls and their personalities, you know? 
You know, don't be superficial. Don't, don't be plastic. And so God made your wife to be your helpmate. And one of the things I want to hit you on is the fact that in the Bible it says in John 8, if Jesus, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you know what comes next. And what? It says, and you will and the truth will set you free. We live in a day that hates truth. I said to Mary Lee a couple weeks ago, it is true that truth is forever on the dunghill and that lies are on the throne. I'm reading Solzhenitsyn's biography now, and I'm in the second volume of Between Two Millstones. And the hatred of Alexander Solzhenitsyn for the Western press who every time they wrote about him lied, lied, manufactured interviews that they had not had, said he had said things he would never say that anybody knew him would find incomprehensible that he would say. And it only gets worse year after year as you read him. And that is the purveyor of what most people think truth is today. Trump was right about that. It was the best thing Trump did was to blow up the press. I mean, Caleb, you have to have some thankfulness for that. I mean, there are certain of us that just hate Donald Trump, you know. <laughs> and I wouldn't say I love him. But, I mean, truth. How much do you love truth? I mean, honestly. When you open the Bible, do you find your natural aversion to the things it says? Do you recognize that? You know, you open the Bible... And it says, um, I mean, the things it says are just fascinating, you know. I'm in, Psalm, I'm in Ecclesiastes, it just started a day ago, and I went through Proverbs, you know, and Proverbs, you know, don't, don't answer a fool according to his folly, answer a fool according to his folly. There must be some distinction between answering a fool according to his folly and answering a, a fool according to his folly. You, you know where I'm talking about. It says directly next to, it's just like Jesus saying, judge not lest you be judged. And then he says, don't cast your pearls before a swine. It's like, wait a second, he just told me not to judge, but so you, now you're telling me, discern the swine. You know, it's, scripture is God's thinking. And it's unbelievably fascinating and helpful. Do you love truth? Do you love truth? There is no way to live in this world without loving truth. Or the only way to live in this world without loving truth is to be as twisted and rebellious and boring as this entire world is. I mean, do you guys realize how boring everything that everybody says is? It's like completely soporific, which is a word you should know along music sorius. It puts you to sleep. Now, if you love truth, how could you be married to a woman you haven't taught to love truth? And so in seminary, what would I do? I'd be reading like the Westminster Standard. This is true. And I'd be reading. I'd say, Mary Lee, come here. So it would be like 9 o'clock at night, 10 at night. And she'd come into the bedroom. She'd sit down on the bed. And I'd begin to read the Westminster Confession to her. And I would say to her, lover, do you see... This is completely contrary to the church we grew up in. Well, then she's in play because, you know, it was a church she grew up in. It was her nursing mother, you know? And she's like, well, I... No, 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 look at this. This is truth. You know, well, I... You know... Do you love truth? Do you love truth? And do you teach your wife to love truth, not just to submit to you blathering on in her face. That's not good enough. Do you teach your wife to love truth? Or do you think that's not a woman's place? 
What I find is that men who finally discover that woman was created for man and not man for woman, then turn her into like, they think that the way to, to, to adopt that truth in the home is to stupefy their wives and daughters. Oh my goodness. Women are so fascinating. Have you ever ridden a horse, any of you? So what am I going to use as an illustration now? What happens when you're always holding the reins tight? Do you know what happens? That horse will not tolerate you. Whether he runs right next to a fence and crushes your leg or bucks, He's going to get rid of you pulling on his mouth all the time. <laughs> you know? Do any of you have wives like that? They're like shaking their heads, trying to get you to lighten up. You know? Teach them to love truth. Truth isn't you. Truth is God. And so it's not self-serving. It's God-honoring. Truth will make you free. Truth will make your wife free. But you have to indoctrinate her in truth constantly because everything else she gets is lies. And so you have to constantly be speaking truth into her. Now, how do you do that? Well, I remember a, a morning where Heather and Doug were over for, for lunch at our old house. And Heather was at that period of time when the house is filled with little children. And Heather was like every young mother in that she was horrified by the fact that she just wasn't in love with being a mother and having little children. And this is constantly what young mothers suffer under. They're so impatient, then they hate themselves because they're impatient, then they get more impatient, then they hate themselves because they're impatient, and they've been waiting their lives to have children. How could they be impatient with their children? Then they're impatient, then they hate themselves, then they're impatient, and then you come home. <laughs> And so I was, I was loving my daughter. I felt for her. Now, what did I do? There's only one person here that knows what I did. What did I do for my daughter? I read her G.K. Chesterton. And you say, who's G.K. Chesterton? I say, it doesn't matter, but he's good. Okay, I read her this essay by G.K. Chesterton, who says that woman is a creature who has the most awesome, uh, huge, uh, undoable job in the world. And man is the drone that spends his life hammering souls onto shoes so that the woman can introduce her children to the world and the universe. <laughs> oh, oh, that's truth, you know? And so I had Heather get on the floor. We all remember, we all lay down on the carpet and I read Chesterton to her. And Chesterton ends up by saying in this essay, it's in What's Wrong with the World. There's a lot in there that's good. He says, I will not pity a woman because of the smallness of her job. I will pity a woman because her job is absolutely, completely huge and intimidating. And that's what Heather needed to hear. And it's truth. It's truth. We don't patronize women. They introduce their children to the universe. Who do you think has taught Bailey to love sugar maples? <laughs> Wait, who said that? I, 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 
<laughs> well, I, Bailey and I went, then went online and began to figure out how next year to build a rocket stove so that we can boil it down and we're figuring out what more trees we can get, you know? I mean, it's so delightful. Sorry. You're up in Indy. I don't get to see your children the same way, which is really sad. All right. Men, what I'm trying to say to you is, I've read Calvin, I've read Bonhoeffer, I've read Chesterton, I've read Solzhenitsyn. If I love something, I expect my wife to love it. And if that sounds to you like a male chauvinist pig, then you see if when you're as old as I am, you have as good a marriage as I do. Don't look down on me. Don't think I'm a male chauvinist pig. Don't think that my wife was easy to be married to. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, honestly, David, has Jill been easy to be married to? She's good with the children. One of the most endearing things that David Crum, Pastor Crum, ever did. I don't know if you know what I'm going to say. It was at ECC. And I think it was a Sunday evening. And David got up and David said, I don't want to fool any of you. My wife is much more intelligent than I am. Do you remember saying that? And I mean, my heart melted. I thought, what an honor to Jill. Could you say that to your wife? Yeah, I'm not saying say if it, is, if it isn't true. But how do you compliment your wife? Do you really expect that you will have a companion in your wife if you're insecure and jealous? Your wife is superior to you in many ways. You know, it may be she's the one that's sick of you giving her uh, your dirty laundry sitting on the floor that she has to pick up. Why can't you pick it up? You have diarrhea. Do you just put it? Do you just put it? I mean, honestly, do you just put it there so she can see your brown streaks? Would you want to see hers? Listen, I'm really serious about this. You should wash it. You should hide it and wash it so she doesn't have to see who you really are. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> Did you hear what they said? They were looking at each other and they said, I throw it away. <laughs> Mary Lee has written a lot of this chapter and she goes on and on about books to read, read them to your children, sharing, going on bike rides, you know, learning about birds. It's all kinds of practical suggestions. But I want to I stop. Um, I don't want to give you ideas. If you can't come up with ideas of where truth is and how you can fall in love with it, I don't know what to say to you. I just don't. Your marriage is what you make it. Your wife is who you've taught her to be. You have nobody to blame but yourself. And so all through this weekend, the message is, here's an idea, repent. That's all the life of a Christian is. It's a life of repentance. That was the first of the 95 theses that started the Protestant Reformation. When our Lord Jesus says, you must repent, he was teaching us that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. And do you think God won't hear you? No, no, that's Satan. Do you think your wife won't forgive you? Oh, my goodness, if you knew the things that Mary Lee has forgiven me for.
live by faith and make her into your companion. And central to that has to be truth. Because truth is gorgeous. Now, any questions before we split up? Do any of you have any questions? Ask me something. Not you, John. No, not you. All right. All right. Yes. You talk about now, this is a man. <laughs> he is fascinating. <laughs> we go over to his house for dinner, and there's only one little place where you can eat in the whole house. Because he has, he has tools, and then he has a huge organ that's in the living room being taken apart and made electronic. And then it comes time for dessert, and he takes out a large butane torch and proceeds to torch the brulee or whatever it was, you know. And this is Aaron Laws. All right, go ahead. So you, you talked about a horse, you know, bucking a rider. Who yeah, the yeah. Tight, and then you yeah. also say your marriage is what you make it. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to, those seem in conflict to me. Like, do, yeah, do yeah, yeah. Or do we let it go? Or how does that work? It takes a delicate touch. And men tend to be indelicate. And so you train a horse, but you don't train a horse by reining him in all the time. And the same thing goes for a woman. If you're reining her in all the time, it's not about you training her. It's just about control. And there's nothing more unseemly than a man whose top value is control than a woman whose top value is control. <laughs> and there are a lot of them in this room this morning. All right. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Yes, <laughs> you know, I tell men that if you want to have good sex with your wife, which generally men do want to have, <laughs> that what you need to do is shock her. You need to surprise her. You need to take her off her groundedness. All right? Every romance novel is about how a man takes a woman off her groundedness. And so what I would say is that you want a woman to be not quite sure what you will do next. You don't ever want to be predictable to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow well let's pray uh, Eric would you stand and lead us in prayer please